And so we might say this is an experience of the void. You're listening to the Digital Void Podcast, where we work to make sense of the borderlands of digital media, culture, politics, and memes. My name is Josh Chapdelaine, and my co-host is memeticist Dr. Jamie Cohen. Today, educator, musician, classics PhD, and first-year law student Brett Wisniewski joins us to discuss how our language isn't always able to meet the challenge of describing our social reality, the difficulties pre-digital institutions face in a digital media environment, and the forms of human expression that lay outside of commodified spaces. Before we begin, make sure to subscribe and leave a review to Digital Void on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform now. I've been thinking a lot lately about the intersections between language and social reality. Now, that's that's not even like a good way to phrase it, intersections, right? Because so much of social reality is made up of language. But I think it's important to also think of social reality as something that is is a common thing. Because there's many different languages, and, and let's face it, even when we're all speaking the same one, we don't necessarily understand one another. We know a lot of that's going on in terms of sort of societal breakdown because of the, the shutdowns that are necessary because of the pandemic. So there's so much of that going on right now. And being in law school, it's a constant thing on my mind is, is right, language and social reality. Like in some ways, that's all I'm doing right now. Like the law is just an intersection of language and social reality, because without those two things mediating each other, there's no law. There's no use for it, right? It's not even, I don't know what it's made up of other than those sorts of things. Yeah. So that that actually, so I've been thinking about this a lot. And mostly in terms of Marjorie Taylor Greene and uh, the inability for her to be a representative or Lauren Boebert or Josh Hawley or any of these people that are basically have replaced governmenting with shitposting. And it makes me think of this because they're legislators, right? So if their goal is to govern and represent constituents and legislate, write laws that become our constructed social reality, if they have no desire to do so, and their whole goal is to please an audience of shit posters. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that it's very, I think it's fairly clear at this point that Bober and Green have no desire to be legislators. I think their desire is to please their constituents and they're not their, I don't mean their physical constituents. I mean their town. I mean like the shit posters, but I also do mean the town because Marjorie Taylor Green had a, had a town hall and everybody that showed up at the town hall are like deep they're deep in it. They're like deep in the grim. And they've become poisoned or rabbit holed or whatever you want to call it by the internet. And now Marjorie Taylor Greene represents shit posters. In other words, the people that showed up to that town hall, if there were actual constituents, they don't recognize Marjorie Taylor Greene as the representative because they that's just not the person that's representing. She actually does represent the people that are internet poisoned. So if they're going to legislate, and I mean, she's not going to win any real legislation, don't, don't get me wrong, but the, in terms of how governmenting works, how do you see like the fabric basically tearing at its seams as it, the internet poisoning becomes foremost in this rather than actual what whatever I, I mean, this is an expertise question for you because as somebody who's studying this, where where is what's happening? Yeah, well, you know what, what the funny <laughs> thing is, is going through my mind as you're saying all this is I'm like, well, in effect, maybe maybe they're the first real um, representatives of the digital age. Right. Like maybe maybe that's it. Maybe this is where the digital takes us is to is to that land. Right. Um, I have this note right above my computer that I leave at all times. Yeah. And it just says this is it, you know, <laughs> and it's a and it's a reminder yeah. that this is it. Yeah. This is 
this is where it is. I mean, this is and whatever, however you want to read that. Right. I often read it as like this is this is the beginning of yeah, here it is. This right. very disastrous <laughs> closing sequence of America, but it's uh, it, it is interesting that you put it that way. Well, you know, I mean, but let me flesh that out a little bit. You know, I don't want to <laughs> dangling because like it's kind of scary, right? Well, a lot of stuff is, but that's good. Here, this, the, the, I'm thinking in this direction, right? Like probably one of the reasons why we all here know each other. I mean, most definitely it's got to be Doug, Douglas Rushkoff, right? And like, you know, it, it, haven't been a fan mm-hmm. of his book since the like late 90s and, 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 you know, wanting to be on board with, okay, the new stuff that's happening and, and all this stuff. And now it's like, and it's like, it's this, it's like, this is what we get, right? So I think that's what you're saying. Like, here it is. This is what we get, right? It's not, it's not the cool psychedelic kind of little bit of a trickster but still like has the best interests of humanity in mind i'm gonna run for legislature and start working on making laws it's 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 the it's these wild it's this q uh sort of like world but now i want to get a little weird right so we have the law right the law is made up of uh you know legislation it's 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 language and social reality right my personal interests the things that that have interested me since I was three years old and still do and probably is what got me into a lot of the the areas of 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 academia or study or whatever that I've been in are are things that are the flip side of that coin right so on the one side of the coin we have the intersection of law and social or language and social reality but the things that are on the flip side are things that exist outside of language and social reality and those are the kinds of things I'm talking about here are the kinds of things that I think conspiracy theories are made of Sasquatch, Loch Ness Monster, apparitions, ghosts, right? Well, ghosts, apparitions probably go together, right? So if, you, if, if you'll follow me, right, what I'm thinking is this, is like, okay, you can't ever get or UFOs to aliens. You got to throw those in. Huge, right? Huge part of it. Because if we're following this stuff like along a cultural line, like conspiracy theories in the media, like an X-Files is like a big, that's a watershed moment, right? The problem with all of these phenomena is that you can't describe them with language well. Every account of any one of those things is going to have some anomalous thing to it, right? There's no way to pin it down. They, they're extra linguistic. As soon as you start talking about them and trying to describe them, it's like trying to describe a dream, right? You, you've had a dream, you know exactly what went on in it. You write it in your journal. You read it back to yourself and you're like, that's not what was going on there, right? So they're outside of language and they're outside of social reality as well, right? They're outside of social reality because it's very rare that any of these things are seen by huge groups of people, right? It's always like an individual. I was walking down this, it was light, it was night out. Maybe there's a couple people together. Those are good stories. Those are always great ones, right? But it's always these little moments. And in our society, we want to throw those out immediately, right? Or we want to have a way to pin them down. We want to say, mm-hmm. okay, is there a there there? What's going on? Is scientific reasoning? This person's hallucinating. They're dreaming. There's an explanation for it. But the truth is, these stories are all throughout history as, as far as we can know and probably have something to do with a breakdown between between orality and literacy, right? Because these are oral tales that now we want to write down. Now we want to figure out. You know, I think what's happening is is there's there's these these sides of the coins are, are they're kind of collapsing in in the digital world. 
right? They're they're falling into each other. Well, I think you're you're speaking to the flattening of it. You know, yeah, that's probably a good term, right? It's it's it. That's well, it's kind of, too the two. The, so the difference between the rush coffee and yeah, cyberdelics and our cyberdelics. Yeah, I think so. One time. I asked Douglas, like yeah. bluntly, I did my dissertation on virtual reality and futures. And I, my argument was that virtual reality was a tech and the tech was temporary. It was actually designed to be everything. That virtual reality was eventually supposed to replace reality. That was their goal. But tech was never, at least maybe not, maybe not for another 20, 30 years from now, will ever really catch up to that. That's why I always think Westworld is really the outcome of virtual reality. Like that's when virtual reality becomes so immersive, you could buy yourself a $40,000 ticket to a theme park where everything's 3D printed and it's really virtual reality. That's where the actual endpoint is. So I asked Douglas once, I was like, so in the in the late 80s and, and early 90s, when you like got involved and you got like in these headsets and you were like, I want to see a new world. What was it? And he just bluntly said, fractals. And I was like, what? <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean fractals? He's like, no, that's it. We were tripping out. Like these were the tech that would develop these fractals. He's like, but what it allowed us to do, which I think most people in the present forget, is that it was nothing to do with the device, the eyepiece, the headset. It was about what you could do inside your head. Because in a place without words, when you when you describe conspiracy theory, you describe like Sasquatch or UFOs, those are the liminal spaces of the imagination. That's actually our brain potentially creating something that doesn't have words because we can't, our brain is too limitless to, to limit with language. And so we, that limitation actually backfires when we try to experience something or share it. I think actually it comes down to sharing. So when, when you have to share it, share Sasquatch, share UFO, like sharing a dream, it barely makes sense to you in the first place, but just trying to transmit that information to somebody else makes less than any sense. The internet and all of our social spaces exist in an exact same plane. It's always two dimensional. It's always on a screen. It's always flat. There's no discourse of emotion. There's no real authenticity whatsoever. So it's when you try that, you have to translate everything you've ever felt into text or at least an image or a meme or a meta text. But you can't go outside of the actual structural limitations of two dimensions because then then you have to feel it or smell it or, or, or experience it. And so when we do that, that's a limitation on language that I think wasn't. I mean, you could probably go back through multiple times throughout human history and find this experience over and over again just on a quick historical tangent i remember the first time i learned about easter island sure. it blew my mind yeah <laughs> those what's going on there how did they get those there yeah that's great <laughs> So they that whole place, we we interpret Easter Island through the present, all these heads that were there and they're all standing up looking and there's no trees. And what we forget is that that was all of Earth, all of the entire planet was occupied by 400 BC. There's humans everywhere, every single place. The last place to be basically humanized was Easter Island. It was the last real. It was the most distant space. Uh, this excludes Antarctica because there's still no humans there. It was this place that was lush. It was green. But what it had was this very specific plant that you could burn and get blasted out of your mind. It was the place where the shamans went because they were just like, oh my God, this, this is great. And over the course of hundreds of years, they deforested the entire thing because they made these heads and they used all the trees to roll these heads into position and they, they walk them. That's the new, that's the theory. And then when they lost all their, their land at around 1400, everybody's like, well, the drugs ran out. <laughs> 
and they left and they left like a group of people and there's no boats left there's no wood so there was literally stranded humans on a on a on a distant planet that was there until about 150 years later on easter when a bunch of white dudes showed up and was like where why are these heads knocked over and there's like because the party ended poorly man and so for 500 years we've stood these heads back up but here we are in that period of the party i think and i think we're just running a little dry on these the drugs <laughs> and i don't know what happens when we deforest this whole place do we build a new yeah. one or do we have to leave it <laughs> i don't think we can leave it i think that's the problem right i think that's what a, that, uh, there's a lot of issues there you know tim leary would have thought yeah we got to leave it right but like i don't think we can i think most people are coming around to like well, you know, we're going to have to try to fix it. Yeah. Well, I think there's no I think there's no tangible option except to fix it at this point. And the problem is that we we built this a certain way. We built these tech a certain way. We built the Internet in a certain way. And it's it's that feature of lock in. So now it's like you have to use the existing structures to build upon those existing structures. But if they're already built broken, you have to creatively misuse it. But that means breaking it. That means actually breaking the system. And I think not just I know I don't really want to delve into the GameStop shit, but that's what kind of it that that's what kind of it looks like. I mean, over the last few days, everybody's been asking me, like, what does this mean? And even Ryan Broderick has, has the same take, which is like, these are examples. They're not the end. They're only the point in which it's an example of what happens in the future. So Ryan, in his garbage day, says bringing memes into an election in 2016 results in an insurrection four years later. Trying to fluff up a, a thing on a, an app in 2021 to, to topple some hedge funds means what is four years from now. So they're misusing something, but they're not. They're building a structural future that we're not yet prepared for. So I don't really want to go into that only because I don't think we could speak about it in terms of a finished point. And historically, I think we recognize everything historically through finished points. The abandonment of Easter Island, the abandonment of Rome, the abandonment of Greece. Until we realize like, oh, this is just what humans do <laughs> over and over again. Well, there's some comfort in that. I mean, it's a grim comfort, you know. Yeah, we'll just knock each other about until there's fewer <laughs> of us left. But, you know, and then cycle. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I see. Your, yeah. So that's difficult, right? Because what are we going to say? Where is it going to go? There's no way we can understand, right? It's, it's hard to speculate on it because... If you like 30 years ago, right now, 1991 is just when I think it was like four out of five of the uh, virtual reality companies started to go bankrupt for the second time for VPL. And it was like they believed for that time this was the future. And they had already started exhausting the technology because they ran out of they limited it. It, ran, it reached its limitation of what the tech can actually handle. And I think that's a case of like we translate that to the analog of deforestation and so forth. Like when you expend all your resources, you just run out. That's so that brings me back to the, the Bober Green. Holly and all these people is that what we notice is that disenfranchisement is the biggest driver for a lot of these anxieties that people feel like they're not part of a larger system. They're they're excluded from it. So the only way for them to be included is to create a reactionary stance is to basically go full out Joker, just go nihilist or try to mess up the system that exists. And Ryan relates this to like Occupy. The Occupy movement in, in a way succeeded in the last few days because those skills that they learned or the anger that they built waited until a technology was able to give them the option to ingest that bad behavior into it and started to act. So sometimes you have to, you create frameworks, but you have to wait until the technology exists for you to act. But in the meantime, you get these personalities like Bobert 
Pauli and so forth. And Josh has worked on this, this forever, which is just that now they exist in a solely inauthentic space, delivering their content vacuous. There's no substance there whatsoever because they missed the opportunity. They didn't wait for the technology to occur for them to exist. So they're existing in that space before their technology exists. They act in a, without language, to use your terms. It's like they don't have the, the language of the future. So they're acting with the language of the present. Well, I don't know. I mean, that leaves me at a bit of an impasse, right? I, I at, at this point, what have I even been thinking about these things is, is just wondering like who Holly is, what's the story there? Um, you hear things floating around in legal circles um, because he was supposedly some kind of like real mover at Yale Law when he was there and better or worse, the way the legal world works is, is very hierarchical in terms of institutions and that institution quite often is seen as the top and never does it ever get criticized that, you know, they produced someone like that or how. It just seems to be like de rigueur. But then it's like, well, what yeah, it's just, I guess, I don't, I, I guess it's pretty clear on the face of what he's doing. He's, he's a slick fascist. Isn't that it? I mean, I, I, you know, am I getting in trouble here? Can I say that? Is that, I guess it's, I don't know. A lot of people feel that way. So, um, and it seems to be pretty surface. Yeah, I think he's a fascist. So I've been working a lot on this very recently. I'm, I'm putting through a book proposal about media martyrdom and it's about how there's a requirement uh, for the right to use victimhood as a weapon, to victimize themselves at all times and to use the idea of media as their martyrdom. But it is downstream dream of Umberto Eco's ur-fascism, which is he said that the new fascism, the internet would garner that in because it creates a new depth of it. And as all of us know, fascism is defined over and over and over and over again. So it's almost usable in that sense, because if you want to go back to the origin, one where it's tied to totalitarianism, it's basically state media, state everything. But I argue the last four years, everything was state media. Since all the systems from Facebook to TV to the legislators built their systems around Trump and he was the president. President, that's fascism. So that's media fascism. It's just a different type of fascism, but it's fascistic. So what now happens is there's a vacuum. Without Trump, someone has to fill that fascist vacuum. And Hawley, I, I can't assume what's in his head or Boebert's head or any of these, their heads, but I do know that regardless of if they're fascist or not, and they may not be, I do know for certain that they're trying to please a fascist audience. And that's true. Because I don't think it's arguable at this point that Q is a fascist movement. In many ways, the insurrectors were fascists. It's a it, might be weird because it's a hundred years after the original version of it, but it, fascism wasn't invented by Mussolini. It was invented at the beginning of civilization. I mean, so it's like it's just reusable at each time. No, I was just thinking of the the Republic, Plato's Republic. Very nice, very nicely tied together fascist community <laughs> there. You know, I think this is the thing. Well, it's but it's frustrating too. Let me put it this way because yeah, I love talking to you guys. And then when I try to import the, these ideas, even in a small way, back to what I'm doing, at law school, it's like nobody, nobody even wants to hear. No one's even close to it. it they're as close to it as some like hedge fund guy trying to short GameStop. Right. So let me let me ask you that then directly, because over the last few days, the analyses of this event are coming from two sides. You have the money people who are like kind of weirded out. They're like kind of upset, but they're speaking in terms of money. They're speaking in terms of what, how money works, how hedge funds work, and how the capital system of the market works. That's their standpoint. That's what they know. The other side, you have the internet people, the people that are solely focused on these weird subcultures and subgenres, and they're just like, yeah, screw the man. You know, I'm glad we're doing a collective action against capitalism. But neither are talking together. They're not really merging these things. And I think there's this space where, and, and I always use the term literacies, but I don't even think it's that. I think it's a comprehension of just the other. I don't think it's out for me to say that. 
there's there's no way to comprehend a hedge fund manager's mindset. I mean, you, to oh, join a hedge fund, you need a min- million bucks just to enter. There's, that's a, a space of privilege. It's really hard to get your mind into. But I think what it is, though, is like if you're going to be speaking about this, like back to language, is we don't have the words for that crossover. So in law, I want to ask you, when you're in law school, you're studying the structural, long historical frameworks of how we got to now. Is there a space for new new words or is it like we just hope that the old words do their best? Well, to be honest and and to be fair, there's a there's a want for it. There's a desire for it, right? So it's not it's not not there. I'm not situated to be able to find out partially because first year is so like rigorously structured. It's designed so I have no free time other than to do first year of law school, right? Like it totally is. It's a it's an intellectual boot camp. It's a new reality tunnel. It's all of that kind of stuff. It's just there's got to be some like psychedelic analog of like spending three days on DMT and then suddenly you're something else, right? It's but it takes a year. So yeah, occasionally you'll hear like this professor is interested. They're they're in uh, intellectual property, but they're interested in AI, right? Like the ramifications of AI. So then it's like I got to dig out of my little 1L hole and find like time to talk to that person and be able to like substantively ask them questions about what exactly is going on. So when I when I do get the chance to sort of look at those things and hear what people are saying, I feel like it's similar in your um, anecdote to the old financiers. Like they've got some idea this stuff is out there, but they're wary like most academics are. I mean, come on, you know this. You try to approach people with these ideas that are instantiated in academia and they're just going to look at you like you've got lobsters crawling out of your ears. <laughs> oh, well, this this kid's ambitious. I, uh, he thinks he's going to get tenure with that. He might have another thing coming. You know, it's it's, almost verbatim. Yeah. Well, it's like I heard it. I heard it when I was there. You hear it now. Like there's very few people that are, you know, out there saying like, no, this isn't. It's not. a Right. Okay. so here's the thing. I think older style academics, I think they still have some sense that good scholarship has a predictive capacity to it. Right. And like we we kind of started out this conversation by saying you got to give that up. Like you can't, there's no predictive or isn't going to do anything because you have to be ready for what's now. So like, like move up to here. Like not like, you know, it's like mindfulness meditation. Like don't worry about the fact that your credit card bill is due in three weeks and you got to figure out how to not default on it. Sit and think about what's going on now. Right. My cat is sick. That's more important. Right. So I was, you know, I was very personalizing this, but Right. Like that's the kind of thing. Predictive capacity, which is something else that old financiers would want more than anything. Right. That's the number one thing. How fast can we move and predict things better than someone else? And it's like, man, it's a crapshoot. Right. Like I was I was I remember saying to some of my students once or from, like you said, that area of privilege where their parents could very easily put some dough into a hedge fund or their parents were running hedge funds who would who would sit and like we want to have a, a stock like club that talks about finance and stocks. And I'm like, why do you want to talk about like equities? Like really all you once you learn how to read a balance sheet, it's horse racing. They're like, what? I'm like, how about we have a thing? How about we have a securitized products thing? And we'll talk about the bond market, like securitized that way more interesting, way more like, like, 
really at the ground floor of, of how humans think and act every day. And they're just like, they've never even heard of this. You're speaking to the most important thing I think we could reach at this point is that we have to remember that the humanities are required in everything. Because you're you're saying that right. Is I think it's 100% right. I mean, we could focus on the, the tools, so to speak. You know, like, it, I don't know. I don't know much about finance and I don't claim to. I, I know enough about it to, to not go broke, but that's it. But when it comes to using those tools, I think it's like important to remember how we got through all this. Like it's that we could discuss it in terms of the present only if we build ourselves the way you were saying, like the social reality. We encourage an acknowledgement of the social reality in which we exist, because if we don't, then we just simply do that predictive work. That to me is the easy work. I think you speak very strongly on the idea of like scholarship there, which is important. But I always remember like my article about Pepe was a predictive article. I mean, it came out, we wrote it in 2015. We assumed Pepe the Frog would be commodified. We had no real idea, nor did we hope that it was going to be appropriated by the alt-right, but we did assume the framework and it worked. We were right, but you don't win by being right. The more important thing would have been the problem with it coming out in 2017 was that it got accepted to a journal that takes six months. And it took two, almost two years for it to get in the journal. And it's still behind a paywall at Duke. And that type of thing is like the model. And this is like, again, why I keep asking questions about law schools, because it's like, it seems to me like that the model is always in the, the construct that is classically traditional rather than like, I don't want to say reactionary because that's always stupid to bounce. It's just a pendulum that keeps swinging, but something that deals with the present. Well, yeah, well, see, this is, I was actually thinking this coming home. I'm like, what do these guys want to talk about? I don't know anything. But one thing I can say is that, you know what? Let's sue somebody. Let's fit, let's find someone who you want to sue. GameStop, let's do it. Okay, let's write up a cause of action. Let's get it into a court. What kind of jurisdiction? I can do that stuff for you now. No problem. What point do you think it's going to get settled? How long do you think it's going to be if it goes to trial? How long is that going to take? A year? Two? Three? The only thing that moves slower than the law is academia. I guess the only thing. That's what I was thinking on the way here. I'm like, well, if I say that, I'll sound smart. But like, it's true. But it's true. It's, it's true, right? Like, you know, and so like that's that's the issue that things are moving much fa- much too fast for that. And But then the, the this sort of begs the question, well, then what? Then what? Right. Then what? Then what? Well, I guess we have a space like this and this is good. It doesn't have to sit behind a paywall unless you want it to, which is fine. But like, right, we have chances to be able to talk to each other. We have chances to be able to rearrange how we get knowledge and use it in ways that isn't completely destructive. I mean, but then it happens like almost spontaneous, right? With with a QAnon. It's just kind of like, right? Knowledge is just, it's just, it's happening. Boom, 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 all the way, all around us all the time. But it also un- unhappens spontaneously. I think we, we, Josh and I spoke to David and I were, and he was saying that one of the most important ways to de-radicalize somebody or approach them is through close proximity, empathy, compassion, and discussion in the present. The longer you keep somebody speaking and talking, the lo- the more chances you have of rebuilding their social reality, mm-hmm. like restructuring it. Because the QAnon is a restructured reality. It's a refabrication. And they, they built a new tapestry out of whatever shambles that had torn apart before they got there. But the, it's it's fairly thin. It's a fairly thin structure. It's It has no real substance. So it will require some point checkpoints, I guess, is the way to think about it, is that it has to, to check in with wherever the present is. And if you can't find those checkpoints and it starts, I mean, then it's just fractals, <laughs> you know, it's like they're just out there and they sort of like become the infinite. And at that point, it's like if you can't a deal with the infinite, then you're already screwed. And two, if you can't imagine the infinite, then it doesn't exist. So it has to it has to have some sort of semblance in a structure in order to imagine it. And that's, again, 
again, back to our language bit, which is, I think a lot of work and, and correct me from your point of view, but I think a lot of work that I do spends a lot of time on the infinite. I, I'm a, I'm a big, uh, my, all my teaching incorporates deep time into it because it just reminds people we exist as one tenth of one millennia uh, at best. And many, many millennials will exist after and many, many did before us. So we really only have what we can do for that little bit of time, but we are only, and, and I never go the, the, the nihilist more point of view. Like I don't say like, Oh, you know, the universe will get along without us. I never put that because we're here. We're having this discussion. We're actually talking right now. So we can't ever have that frame point of like nihilism, but it does mean that we do need a, a language or a way at least of, of acknowledging maybe, maybe just having that time to like be like free to experiment with language, maybe, you know, like be not. And that's like that extra outside the commodification values outside of the space, because it's like every time you create something new, it's only a matter of time. The only thing the quicker than everything else is how fast something gets commodified. <laughs> so in the opposite of academia is how do we make money off this? And so it's, it is like this. I know we're now going in circles, but I think maybe that's the point. We have to encounter new ways of like at least agreeing to agree with the the, the bigness. Well, yeah. And that's what I was about to. I mean, as soon as you said it, I was like, well, how do you deal with the infinite? You know, and that could be a rhetorical question or that could be a direct question. But I mean, at some point, it seems like in certain circles and in certain places, we, we do have ways of dealing with it, but they're not popular by any means. And they're usually couched in something archaic, right? They're usually, it's, it's, it's some sort of, oh, well, you know, myth, that's, well, that's the way we could deal with the answer, right? Or we can tell stories, that's the way we do. Music is good. Oh, music's always good, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, very easily commodified. Well, maybe not. That's a side issue. If we get in the whole music hole, it's a whole, I've got big problems with, I've always had problems with music. I don't understand it. I'm a musician. I don't get it. It's problematic to me. Either it's completely just a random genetic freak out for humanity, like having a six toe and it means nothing or it means everything including the universe and everything beyond there's no middle ground for me on that and i still can't figure it out. i will go to my grave probably never understanding music right i just don't get it it's bothersome to me i i wish i just could, had nothing to do with it because it drives me nuts but there you go there it is it's a way for me to deal with the infinite right because i can't figure it out i can't i don't know i don't understand what it is right why is that particular group of tones better than this particular group of tones, which is why music is interesting because it resists commodification. You can't make it fungible, right? Because <laughs> there's a subjective element that, that screws that all up and, and, and constantly keeps churning through things. Like that, that music is interesting because it, 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 in its own right, as a phenomenon, kind of like has, has always had an uneasy relationship with the digital, I think. Right. Like at first it was it was like, oh, Napster. Remember, oh, oh, the music industry, it killed the music industry. And when I was growing up, it was like, well, that's good. We want to kill the music industry. I'm a dead Kennedy's fan. They used to put out a tape where the other side was blank and it said, use this blank side to kill the music industry. Right. Like I didn't. You know, that was gnarly. Like speaking of 1991, right? I'm going on a tangent, but I, I, it's good. I, I'm going to run with it. We, okay, so then, all right, so we've digitized it. We figured it out. All right, we're going to pay artists now. Well, well, yeah, but all you've done with that is the same thing that happens with finance. There's going to be like 12 or 13 artists who are going to be billionaires, and the people who used to be in the middle are going to be gone 
right? Those artists that used to be able to just go out and tour once a year and put out an album on an independent label and still go home and feed their kids just don't really necessarily exist anymore. So you've got this sea of just, you know, not blip, blop, bloop people doing all kinds of things they want. And then Taylor freaking Swift, right? Who's, you know, like, what is even that, right? Who now, right, is going to have her own, like, uh, IP, independent, right? She's going to, like, own public offering. You guys were talking about that. You you were the guys telling me that artists are now going to have public offerings on themselves, which is, like, it's bizarre. But in my, I, you know, we'll talk about predictive. Music just seems to be slippery. It's, it's hard to, it's hard to keep a handle on. It's hard to control in these ways. Yeah, right. Certain, it works to a degree and then it kind of morphs again. Right. So maybe there, maybe there's something there. Maybe there is a phenomenon that we could look to as, uh, you know, problematic, but still a bit of a safe space. Will it get destroyed into something else? You know, but that, that my other theory is, oh, my third thing, uh, you know, there's a there's a middle ground between either it's a sixth toe or it's the universe and everything. It's quite in, absolutely entirely possible that it's an extra dimensional intelligence that has parasitized humans. And every time we recreate it and d- deal in it, it it's, you know, it's just extra dimensional. We're not going to understand time and languages don't matter when it comes to that. So there's a, there's my middle ground. That's uh, I'll start with your middle and then go to where I believe you were going. There's a music video that broke me. It's Radiohead Just. There, it, this, the scene is pretty interesting. The, the video starts where a man lies down on a sidewalk and people walk around him and they're like, you're dude, you're right. You're right. And the song goes on and no. And through the whole thing, he just kind of lays there. There. And at a certain point, somebody goes, are you all right? And goes, are you sure you, you want to know? And he goes, yeah. And the guy puts his ear there and the camera zooms out and everyone's lying down. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and you're like, oh, my God. Like, it's just got too heavy for everything. So it's like my buddy George and I, we used to go mountain biking every Friday and we'd go on these riffs like we're doing right now. And he'd always say that middle ground. He'd say that there were probably part of something bigger and that these, these people look down on us and they just go. Oh god damn it they chose fascism again like like yeah. every time it's like ah oh, pick a new one but i i think to build off let's i'd rather end this on like a like a positive note yeah. and i think where you're leading with the music thing which you you basically just broke my head with the thought of like the idea of like the subjective noises that like i'm a musician but i'm not good at it but then i then i never yeah. thought about the fact that maybe that's okay like maybe that's a, what's good i don't understand <laughs> that's it right like but that until you said that though like i was kind of feeling excluded from music and i've played bass for for like so long but i stopped playing it like five six years ago because i was just like this is i'm just not great you know this is just not gonna work out but what you're le- what you're alluding to i think i'm gonna go to rachel carson here so rachel carson wrote silent spring in the 1960s or 70s, I think it was the 60s. And she's the woman who's basically solely responsible for ending DDT, legal DDT use, air poison for us when they were trying to kill things. And she wrote this book, Silent Spring, while she was dying of breast cancer. And she wrote it anyway. It was about the, she basically started the environmentalism movement. But what she had, she built this interesting framework that I employ as much as humanly possible, which is a, a very short essay that's in actually a women's journal or women's day or one of those women's magazines that 
were like, like historically now you look at them and you're just like, wow, that's crazy sexist because women only did like kitchen things in the magazine. It was like, oh my God, it's horrible. She wrote in this, this article called Help Your Child to Wonder. And that article is about her watching, I think her nephew or her grandkid. I can't really, so I, I read this a thousand times, so I should actually have this committed to memory at this point. But she basically said, you need to have a space where there was no way of knowing good or bad. And that space is wonder. And so wonder itself is the only space in which this healthy discourse can occur, which is the idea of like understanding that things can be both wonderful and you could have wonder of them. So you could be curious, but it doesn't have to have a curious... When you ask a question, it doesn't have to result in an answer. It has to result in a wonder. And that goal was a very interesting thing that I think helps us deal with the, the infinite or deal with the limitations of linguistics or language. I think if we expect language or academia or law or life to just catch up to any of this, we're, we're just going to remain that the joker forever. We have to find a way for that to not exist. And the only way for that to be is to understand that there's music doesn't have to make sense. Like it just, uh, <laughs> it just has to, it ha you have to have some sort of wonder about it. You have to have some sort of, you could look at a, I always say like, as you have, you know, you go out and like look at a tree and just be like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, I can't believe this thing like breathes. It's sucking in air. Like it's just, it's breathing and it's getting bigger because of that. And I can't see any of this and it's happening. And I don't have to know how this works. I just don't have to know. And that type of thing is like nice because when you get that, you, you kind of like then go, okay, I exist as a being, but outside of time itself, I am here. And so I think that that helps me calm down. That centering that's present for me. And I think uh, scary for some people. Yeah, well, it should be scary. I think that's part of wonder. I think you should understand that a lot of this stuff, you will feel this intense and incredible fear all of a sudden because you're just like, I've not, I don't know how to deal with this. And then you just go, that's okay. I don't need to know how to deal with it because I can't. I just can't. I'm sorry. It's just some things can't be dealt with. <laughs> I think you just explained me to me because, you know, when we, we started out, I was talking like, oh, since I was a little kid, I was interested in the flip side of the coin, right? These things that are weird and out there. And I, my first memory of life was watching uh, the horror of Dracula with Christopher Lee with my dad. I was like two and a half, three years old. And I know this is true because I asked my parents and they can triangulate it. My dad had had to go in for an inguinal hernia surgery that he got from playing racquetball, right? So they, they know, right? And so I know how old I was, but it's like, I totally remember when Christopher Lee got on the screen and hissed with those fangs, I curled up in a ball and it was the most delicious feeling I've ever had because it was fear and wonder. And the first thing I wanted was more, 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 more. And every time I got it, I was running away and hiding. But that's the thing there. That's there, you know, living in that feeling is great. And I think like, you know, I'm, maybe, maybe my experience in life is a lot of people that's very off-putting and, and, and they would rather not, um, you know, I can't ask everyone to, but it's it, at least there, maybe there's, if there's a, a, a group of people out there doing that, then, then that'll help. But that's where this is the, this project that we're on is like, that's, there is a space, there is a void, there is a, a and the problem with the, the internet is that it tries to eliminate the void. It tries to give an answer. It tries to create a reality. It creates, it tries yeah. and it will never succeed, but it has to always try because it can't be used otherwise. So that, that type of space has to be acknowledged at some point, or we will always end up as shit posters. So so we have to we have to find our way into a common or at least an agreed upon idea that it's OK to not have the answers. And I think that's that is the biggest I think the Internet has given us the ability to make insecurity 
bad and answers good. And I think insecurity is good. I, I want to wrap up here because I think this is just it was a wonderful loop. And I think it's it's really fun to have these conversations. And I think I think it's wonderful that you're studying law. And I really give you the credit. <laughs> well, sorry, it's, it's hard and it's nerve wracking. And they're, the ethos of the whole place is let's see how if we can break these people in how many different ways, either through ideas or through social competition. And there's a lot of pushback. What I'm loving, honestly, is that I'm I'm older. Most of the people on average are about 20 years younger than me. And those people are good people. They're good people because they're not buying into that horse shit. They're not buying into everything has to be competitive. And, and all I got, some of them are granted fine, but most aren't. Most are the biggest club on campus is alternative dispute resolution, right? As, as, as something different than this adversarial trial tough guy thing. And there's there's the moment that that is great. And for me as a teacher, and for me now as a student with people that are 20 years younger than me, I've always said to people, look, if there's here's my only predictive moment that I could give you. Don't despair about the future because the people that are coming up are good. There's a lot of good people there. And they and they want to do things for humanity and and it's it, there's there's a future the it's it's good don't just give all oh, kids these days well yeah but they're good so you know that's that's where I'm at on that well I I appreciate I mean it's I think what I think I'm most enamored by in this is that you're bringing humanism you're bringing Rushkoff ideas you're bringing these thoughts into law because it, you're you're doing that extraordinary work in that way so I, I you know that's that is bigger than you might know at this point but it's like yeah I, I mean I've been there I was I did my PhD late you know it's like I was probably the set the oldest in my group you know it's and it was and it was beautiful to see these people that really genuinely cared and I still keep in deep contact with them because it's like care beyond it all it's like that's that's the foundation of wonder too it's like is as long as you just care, you know, so it's like there's space for that. So thank you. Yeah, me too. It always happens every time we, every time I get on with you all, I'm like, it's awesome. And anytime, like anytime. Thank you to Brett for joining us on the Digital Void podcast. To learn more about Digital Void and to find show notes of today's episode and all previous conversations, you can visit us on the web at digitalvoid.media. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll be back next week.